0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to Lighting the Pipes Selects for this summer. This is a little series that we are kind of trying to make a bit of a tradition now. Last year, we went back in the vault and we took out a couple of earlier conversations, polished them up a little bit, reintroduced them, reread the stories, and, and we're going to do the same thing here, too. Last summer, I think, Josh, we did four. Sherlock Holmes stories. This time we're just going to, um, we're going to do two of the big titans, aren't we? We're going to look at the final problem and the empty house. But, uh, But this episode is all about the final problem published in December of 1893, which was supposed to be the end of Sherlock Holmes.
1: That's right. Just like they killed off Superman, and then they brought him back soon afterwards.
0: That's right, you, they did.
1: You don't kill a popular hero without causing an uprising, you know what I mean?
0: <laughs> Absolutely. And we had we had this conversation, the one that, that we're going to present now for you in a few minutes, everyone. We had this conversation, oh, you know, a few years ago now, back in uh, 2017. Um,
1: crazy to think, the pre-pandemic world's.
0: I know right um, when we were doing our, our Holmes project but it uh, it certainly bore fruit and we had a lot of fun talking about this one what, what were your what are your memories of the final problem um, not not so much our conversation of it but just the story itself you know
1: I suppose in terms of the writing uh, like the descriptions uh, how he how Conan Doyle portrayed the scenery uh, the suspense of the journey he did that quite well he made a Moriarty this character who was supposed to be Sherlock's nemesis uh, quite menacing from the get-go and you wanted to learn more about him. Alas, that did not happen. Thanks to a tumble from (laughs) Reichenbach, but uh, I did find it like, and I did enjoy, I enjoyed it. Like I guess on a visceral level as like, it was a suspenseful kind of thriller, but I have many issues with how it's a very forced situation Kind of like we were having a discussion on our other podcast uh, regarding the last James Bond film, No Time to Die, about how characters are forced into certain situations because of whatever demands the writer has or whatever Mm -hmm. agenda the writer has. And that seemed to be the case with The Final Problem. Like, on the surface, there's a good story there that could have been elaborated, something that could have felt deeper and had a more Mm -hmm. emotional impact but in the end, what we received was a quick sign-off to a great hero that we've gotten used to over the, you know, the various short stories that we read prior That's to right. that, yeah. and then we're just killing him off. Kind of, I guess they gave him a final fight, I suppose, and you know, but mm-hmm. it felt very anticlimactic for being climatic.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it did. It felt like a poor. I think we mentioned this in the episode, don't we? Something to the effect of it being. Uh, at least to our taste, it was a uh, kind of like a poorly written season finale for a, a good show, you know.
1: Yeah, I was listening to bits of the episode just to refresh our conversation. Right. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we talked
0: about the X Files a lot in that. <laughs> Did we? Okay. Well, yeah. hey, This this is the five years ago us. This this is the oh, beginning yeah. of lighting the pipes. So it's uh, it was recorded in September of uh, of 2017. <laughs> so yeah. So just just a warning fun.
1: for those who are not familiar with the X Files. Uh, we do make a, quite a few references to it, uh, possibly spoil the second season finale <laughs> c- scenario, uh, but it's all in good faith. Uh, that was just, our, I think, it's at the time when we were putting that episode together. That was just the first thing to remind me of, of a serial kind of storyline where you have cliffhangers from, you know, from season to season, from book to mm-hmm, book, mm-hmm. issue to issue where you have the heroes in a situation where it looks like there's no hope, but then all of a sudden they're, it's, it's left to be continued. So mm-hmm. there's no there's no finality. And we expect to go you know next season or in the next book or the next issue to see our hero prosper, to see them survive the trial that they've been given. But uh-huh. with the final problem, they simply kill him off. They just get mm-hmm. rid of the hero and then bring him back uh, again in the next story after right. popular demand for him to be resurrected.
0: And we get into the context of that too. We get into the context of the author's decision. We get into um, the kind of reaction of the media. We also we also talk a little bit about the Sherlockian theories. I remember, Josh, um, in this episode <laughs> where we're yeah. talking about kind of who Moriarity is. And one of the things that I remember quite clearly from this conversation of five years ago is uh, – um, feeling a little bit let let down by Doyle you know that here is this great opposing force that matches Holmes and walks with him step by step you know here's the guy who finally can keep up with and maybe stay ahead of Sherlock Holmes and we only get him in one story and we're told in kind of kind of quick write-off fashion that oh Holmes has been chasing him for years, yet this is the first time we've ever heard of him. I remember us getting into kind of the um, we deserve better type feelings there. Now, I don't know how many yes. of those are a product of the fact that we're reading these stories quickly and not with the time and the context of publication. You know, we're not contemporaries of the Strand magazine when they've been released. So, yes. we, yeah. we, you know, we we can we're be a bit binge- more critical we're, of we're it. We're binging. Yes, we were binging yeah, we're it, binging. essentially. We're- yeah.
1: And I'm going to say this in terms of after we did that episode and speaking mm-hmm. now, mm-hmm. we were definitely conflating the lore or I guess the mythos of Moriarty in the overall Sherlock fandom yes. and how he is the nemesis of Sherlock yeah. Holmes, just like just like you know how the Joker is a nemesis to the Batman or Lex Luthor is to Superman or Norman Osborn uh-huh. is to the Green Goblin, so on and so forth. You know what I mean? So you have these this famous character with his famous nemesis. And so it's expected when you, when it, that's already ingrained in pop culture, and then you go back to the source material and then you have the nemesis finally appear. That's right. And then it's sort of like, Oh, the author didn't have the same feelings towards the character as we have now in the present. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The author was used Moriarty as a device to kill his character yeah, because the only way that he felt, he, he probably I'm just supposing that he probably felt that he could kill Sherlock Holmes is with someone that he had to introduce to do so, who is kind of the equal in terms of intellect, in terms of cunning, in terms of brilliance to defeat Sherlock Holmes. And that's why he created Moriarty for that purpose. And see what you will about the BBC Sherlock. They did set up Moriarty quite well in the BBC adaptation
0: yeah they did They did so, do that Yeah, we're looking at the story from the future in a sense and we do. We have a lot of understanding of Moriarty as a character because further adaptations of the Holmes canon of the Holmes stories have developed Moriarty more carefully than Conan Doyle did Conan Doyle created him, he was to be a feature to kill off uh, the character and to be the antagonist that finally, finally brought Holmes down because at that time he wanted rid of him and then, of course, we get into conversation, don't we, about the uh, the black arm bands i I believe <laughs> I think we talked about that here as well, but it was it was a good chat. it was a fun chat. It was a five it years was. ago us chat and uh, i'm glad I'm glad you've selected this one for our uh, our summer selects because it was fun to uh, to go back and read the story again and yeah there's there's a lot of great stuff. The travelogue features of this story are quite cool um Fantastic. to say nothing of uh, the weaknesses in the story, I mean we will we'll talk about those as well. Um, but yeah, this uh, this was good fun. I enjoyed it. So we hope you enjoyed, everybody. Um, this is just a a little short summer season. This is what we like to do. Uh, we got another big read coming up in a few weeks. We're going to meet and we're going to talk about uh, K.W. Jeter's Noir, which is a cyberpunk novel, the first time we've taken a step into the world of cyberpunk. Really excited about that conversation. And uh, before that, Josh will have for us another episode of uh, LTP Noir, Lighting the Pipes Noir where he's going to go through, do you want to say what it is?
1: Just for those who enjoyed the first episode, thank you for listening. And you also enjoyed the, you know, the historical and theoretical foundations of Noir that I established. And uh, my very I would say stylistic review of the Maltese Falcon. I didn't really get into detail of like a plot summary or anything like that. But if you go just if you go go watch the movie, if you haven't heard the episode yet, because I mean, it's a classic one of Bogart's best. Uh, John Huston is just a fantastic director and screenwriter. So uh, I think it's as I, as I mentioned uh, to Scott, I think on when we covered the Maltese Falcon on. Letting the Pipes, uh, the novel by Dashiell Hammett, we even discussed, I think, how much of mm-hmm. the film is superior to the novel. So, mm-hmm. you know, we, we mentioned that. So in this case here, in this episode coming up, uh, we're going to jump into Otto Preminger's Laura. Uh, this is a movie that Scott was really into. I never really saw it at the time, but he always said that was one of his favorite noirs. So before I really got into film noir on the level that I am now, I hadn't seen it. And so mm-hmm. that was one of the first ones that I... I ordered in was Laura because I needed to see that for, cause I heard that it was a seminal piece and uh, yeah, it's quite a film. So I hope you enjoy that review and that, uh, and uh, we have some, it has a very interesting history behind it too, particularly in, into Preminger, the director of the film, as well as its cast. So, the overall making of Laura is a fascinating story in itself. Lots of interesting characters involved there, of course, with mm-hmm. Preminger and Tierney and Andrews, uh, who yeah. all live, live very interesting Vincent lives. Vincent
0: Price.
1: <laughs> oh, and of course, Vincent Price. Yeah. <laughs> forget,
0: America's favorite love interest.
1: <laughs> exactly. It's really, I will say, this is a segue. I've watched two films now with uh, Gene Tierney laura mm-hmm. and also leave her to heaven and vincent mm-hmm. price is in both of those i guess because cool. he was a 20th century fox mm-hmm. contract worker at the time when he was young and so he plays very different roles in either film but uh yeah it's really cool to see him as like an american uh, yeah. in american roles like he's not kind of the purveyor of horror he's this very sort of really tall
0: up tall kind of and hen- gen- yeah.
1: All dark and handsome kind of stuff. Well, his character in Laura is a little bit iffy there. Kooky, but, a little uh, bit kooky, yeah. He presents the veneer of someone like that, mm-hmm. though, for sure.
0: I haven't seen Laura in a few years now, so um, I've got myself a great copy, a Criterion copy um, on the Blu-ray, and I'm just going to wait until uh, that episode drops and I'm going to rewatch it. I'm really looking forward to that, man. Um, Me too. Uh, my favorite, incidentally, my favorite Gene Tierney film is uh, The Ghost and Mrs. Muir with oh, rex yeah. harrison i love her in that that's that's just a it's a bernard herman score for that i don't know anybody guys if you're listening and uh, you like these sort of old movies and it's not a noir film at all it's more of a romance really this sort of supernatural romance but uh um, one of the best herman scores it's just so so kind of mystic and um you know evokes the ocean and it evokes history and it's just such a wild, wild piece of work. Very spiritual too. Really cool. And the, the movie Very is great. Cool. Performances are great. So yeah. Anyway, some stuff to look <laughs> forward to and lighten the pipes. That's a long winded wave of getting around to what we got coming up. We've got hey, these. We got um,
1: coming up. What can we say?
0: Yeah, we got a lot of great reading coming up that's going to uh, see us into September and October for sure. And these little uh, summer session Sherlock Selects and a couple of LTP Noir. So it's going to be it's going to be a great summer and a good fall and Like Josh says, thanks, everybody, for listening and your continued uh, support. Really appreciate it. And, yeah, we're pleased to keep bringing you some good content and fine reading. So uh, for now, let's just transition over to this conversation of five years ago and, uh, yeah, enjoy The Final Problem by Arthur Conan Doyle.
1: We were so innocent. Yeah, let's move on to climatic showdowns that also don't really come too much in the end. Well, not in terms of being emotionally impactful anyway. Uh, that's my preface to the final problem, and if people were looking forward to this story in the way that I kind of was, um, sorry to say that uh, I was a little bit disappointed with this one. Even though I liked bi- parts of it, I thought it could have be better executed, in my opinion, but the agenda behind the story and why it was written. I'm not surprised. But let's get into that. So, The Final Problem was uh, first published in Strand Magazine in December 1893. It is actually ranked fourth best of his stories by Arthur Conan Doyle himself. But he also liked the Naval Treaty as well, so you gotta wonder. And he also <laughs> likes, thinks The Speckled Band is one of his favorites too, I believe, if not his favorite story.
0: I, I think before we go any further, I, I just I gotta get this... I think we gotta say this, right? Like... okay. These guys, these writers, whether it's Fleming or whether it's, you know, uh, Doyle, like we've, we've done this in the past and particularly with Doyle, like doesn't owe us a damn thing. And his decision to kill off his character, bring his character back, it's, it's totally up to him, you know, like he's, he gives us great stories. But the naval treaty for me was just was just dull and boring. I didn't like it, but I, I totally get that some people out there love it. They love the lore of it. They love everything that it offers. And that's cool, man. That's cool. Like we're playing with opinions. I, I just feel like, you know, we, we got to get that that brotherhood of feeling out there. You know, like we, we got different feelings, opinions. Good. Hey, I
1: think that keen music just triggered you. That's what I think was happening here. Is, I think you're feeling all you the brotherhood yeah? love. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> all it's, right, it's, cool. It's Percy. He's made us all uh, sensitive and emotional.
0: What a dick. <laughs> I got brain fever. Is that what you're telling me? You got brain fever. Brain fever, as uh, Brian Wilcox says. Right, okay. Uh, right, back to you and your uh, discussion of the final problem dave wilcox brian wilcox david wilcox david david was even close okay you you let Uh, me know you let me know when you want me to run the benny hill reel again
1: yes yes i think it should be run several times during this whole episode to be honest this was (laughs) the episode is. a benny hill show so far (laughs) it is yeah it really is yeah so moving forward with the uh the benny hill show here the final problem is exactly what it's about it's Conan Doyle, he wanted to stop writing about his detective, about Sherlock Holmes. We know that he wants to dive into Professor Challenger and, and to get those stories out there and also write tales about uh, experiences in the army that he's had, so he really wanted to push forward, and he, I think he wanted to close the book on Holmes for good. But he also wanted to give him kind of like a, a great send-off, and uh, I think he tries to do this, and I think he almost succeeds in the final problem, but we can debate that later. Um, now... Before we light our pipes here, um, I don't know. Like,
0: I don't think I can I can expand upon that any further. I mean, I can yeah. expand. Okay, I will tell you what. If you're looking for filler, I can I can fill something up. Um, <clears throat> here's here's some three true facts. Okay, this story stunned the British public when it was re- when it was released in December of 1893. It stunned them. It cost the Strand twenty thousand readers. That's a true fact. It led to an outbreak of black armbands of grief. And so, if there was ever if there was ever evidence needed of just how big a figure Sherlock Holmes is has become to the British reader, it's that like they actually mourned his death in the streets. Wow! And the Strand newspaper, or sorry, the Strand magazine, lost twenty thousand readers. And yeah, fine. London was a huge cosmopolitan city. It, it, you know, I mean, it could probably afford to lose you know a, a large number of readers. But that is that's an outstanding amount of people to just stop reading because Holmes wasn't there anymore.
1: Yeah, what, what that either shows that they were really annoyed by his death, or that they okay, well, there's no point to read the read anymore because they only read it for
0: Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, why don't I uh, share a little bit more as well uh, about how the the story led to a lot of well, pretty incredible theorizing in the Holmesian subculture. I can do that now, or I can do it at the end. But I really want to do it because I think it's no, interesting stuff.
1: Well, let's deal with that. You have some extra sources that I don't have there, so
0: let's... I do. Uh, but it, what, but yeah. what it means is that I'm going to be I'm going to be talking about parts of the story before we get there, but only in only in summary. You know what I mean?
1: All right. Well, I'll just lay out my summary, and then we'll discuss some some of the theories that came from that, and then uh, we can then uh, light our pipes again here. Excellent. All right. The tone is set right away in the first paragraph of the final problem. Why the regret? Who is Jim Moriarty defending the memory of? What is going on? I'm sure all will make sense in the end, right? Holmes walks into Watson's private clinic with cut knuckles and an iron, slightly paranoid resolve. Air guns, guys! Air guns everywhere! And straight up tells Watson, so... All this time, all these cases that we've been working on, well, some of them may have been connected. Yeah, yeah, I know, crazy, right? I mean, despite of suggesting the retconning at the most convoluted, all get-out fashion, I'm here to tell you, my dear friend, that a man who was virtually my evil twin is hunting me down. And probably, you know, you, you as well now, thanks to my slightly overzealous inquiries to bring down his organization yes 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 I know you have many questions about this guy is legit and say what are you doing next week Mary's away well that is super convenient oh you can leave your practice for a bit okay great let's go to Europe and allow ourselves to be chased down and eventually walk into traps <laughs> up by this criminal mastermind here's your arrangements and I'll just climb over your garden wall Laters. <laughs> and it
0: almost happens that quickly too
1: it almost happens that quickly so, during this tense but romantic exchange, we get a suspenseful flashback of Watson and Moriarty's first face to face, and I'm like, OMG, scared cat face girl, covering her eyes, emoji. Mor- Moriarty has no <laughs> chill. Holmes is close to bringing down Moriarty, but may not be able to do so now that Moriarty's onto him. Carriage accidents are arranged. Bricks fall. Hired goons. Hired goons. And they plague Holmes through- throughout London as he goes from Mycroft's to. Uh, Watson's for safety, his two safe spaces. <laughs> so recruiting Mycroft like their own little A-team. Our dynamic duo hops carriages, changes license plates, loses tails, and hops on a train to Canterbury to avoid Moriarty's Smursh operatives. Sadly, Watson does not get to share a, comp- a compartment with Danielle Bianca. Instead, he gets an Italian <laughs> priest as his traveling companion. Spoiler alert, it's Holmes, in one of those Mission Impossible disguises. I'm just waiting for a moment where Holmes will pull off his face at some point, and he's been Tom Cruise all this time, <laughs> but never <laughs> comes to my chagrin. I'm, star-
0: I'm starting to think that the box not necessary anymore.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's definitely contrasting. Uh, so, uh, what's the word? Uh, juxtaposing. Mm-hmm. What, what was that term? The musical term? No, Counter- you got it. Ca- Counter- uh, counterpoint.
0: Mm. Yeah. Counterpoint to your
1: point. Counterpoint to my point, yeah. purpose. So... Yeah, so to my disagreement, Tom Cruise doesn't reveal himself. Uh, the pair, they disembark at Canterbury, and already like the Winter Soldier or the T-1000, Moriarty is moving with evil purpose <laughs> to the train station, just as Holmes and Watson hoof it over to another train, taking them to a ship to take them to the continent. Brussels and then to Strasbourg, where Holmes gets a telegram from the London police that Moriarty's empire has fallen, but the villain has eluded capture and is coming after him, and this time it's for revenge. Knowing that Moriarty's done for he re- uh, if he returns to London, uh, Holmes places himself and a volunteering Watson as bait, and we get a Dracula-like chase through Alpine Europe, leading to the heights of Switzerland. This chase, I must remind you, takes a breather for a bit, and Holmes and Watson have some l- last-minute bromancing in the Rhone Valley. But this comes to a head in Meringen, a tiny village where Holmes and Watson are told by the local innkeeper how to hike over into the next town without being observed, oh, but stay away from the falls of Reichenbach. gonna say cue ominous music about the falls of reichenbach but <laughs> i guess that's ominous <laughs> well it's Swiss, right yeah it's kind of has that uh that kind of like juxtaposition of suspense and happiness that like uh do you know where christmas trees are grown kind of thing um hmm. uh, homes do not stay away from the falls of reichenbach however and while attempting to travel around it the duo receive a messenger boy from Maringen with a telegram for watson telling him that an english woman who has just arrived in town is dying and requests an english doctor Watson, unable to conceive of the idea of a trap, decides to head back to town because plot. To Watson's utter shock sigh, there is no Englishwoman, and he sent no message. The boy belonged to Professor M., Watson doggedly makes his way up to the falls of Reichenbach to find his friend no longer standing against the sh- rocks in the sublime backdrop of the Great Falls and all the other imagery that would make Wordsworth or Shelley jizz their pants. <laughs> Putting on the detective hat for the first real time in all these stories, Watson deduces the epic struggle that led Holmes and Moriarty to plummeting to their deaths down below. A great detective of a great character had to give his life to stop the utter antithesis to his own nature. Sad. That was my Donald Trump ending.
0: Yeah, it's quite right because that's the only t- that's the only time that um, Watson actually is forced to figure out what happened. <laughs> like, how did he die?
1: I, I, I pictured like a, uh, Sherlock Holmes, like, like Mufasa in the sky. Good for you, boy. Good for you, or something, or something yeah. like that, right?
0: Yeah. <laughs> you know, it is very important in in the canon and. We've come a long way in this journey, and and we need to allow ourselves to have some fun along the way. The final problem is a serious story, and it has a serious part to play in the Holmes, you know, mythos. Yeah. How, however, it it isn't necessarily a perfect story, and no. as a investigation, as a Sherlock Holmes story, you could actually say that it it is a bit of a failure, but given the structure and the style of these Holmes investigations, and given the fact uh, that Doyle here wants to end his character and exit stage left, then it probably couldn't really be a normal investigation. I mean I don't yes. know I don't know how you feel about all that, but that's the one thing that I, I felt I was battling with while scoring these components was the fact that, this is not an investigation. It's it's like an episode. Uh, it's it, it's like a it's an episode of a like a series finale. You know, like it, it's yes. all it's, the whole thing is denouement The whole story is denouement Like we pick up yes. as the story starts to end, and it's just stretched out over a series of scenes and countries. Right?
1: Yes. There. Are, I'll go into it later, but I feel that um, if Moriarty was introduced and teased throughout all the stories in, in the beginning. I think uh, the the impact of this story would be much stronger, and I think I think it would be a better story because of it, uh, despite you know it's uh, it's um, standing you know in the Sherlock mythos as you said, mm-hmm. um, but of course the character Moriarty was created for the sole purpose of killing Sherlock Holmes, uh, kind of the the antithesis to his very being, and uh, you got to give credit for for Arthur Conan Doyle for for doing that. But um, I think there was some potential with Moriarty as a character, and I feel—and again, we're going into the perpetrator side of our pipes here—but mm-hmm. I feel that um, there was potential unrealized with this story.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't mind if you want to talk perpetrator first. We can do these things in different order. But I feel that one of the one of the reasons why this, the, the British public was stunned is. Probably not just because they lost a great character that they loved, but I mean, like for me personally, I was stunned in a sense. I was stunned that, you know, here we are, 24 stories in, two novels in, and the guy who, or Sherlock Holmes dies after saying, oh, this guy's been around for so long he's a master criminal, like, I've been fighting against him for months, and I've been trying to trying to deconstruct his network and reveal him to the police, and we have to do it this way, we have to do it that way we, we can't just sort of arrest one and not the others, we have to wait for this trap that I've laid to be totally set, and blah blah blah, like I'm pissed off, Josh, I gotta be honest with you, I'm pissed off because this, like, and I, I think the part of the, the reaction that the public had at the time was like, fuck, Doyle fuck, you could've, you could've introduce this guy a little bit like a sleazy shadow in an alleyway looking down at you know at, at lascar's opium den you could have had a little a little guy here or there if, if he's going to be mythology you know if he's going to be the smoking man of this entire this entire canon then you gotta yeah. you gotta give me something before the 24th story before you're gonna kill off your central character tell me why he's important don't yes. te- don't tease me this way you know it, it's it's a bit of a letdown and you got to give kudos to Hollywood I think and the
1: BBC in general and all every adaptation of Holmes now that you see that they build up Moriarty in a much better way in my opinion.
0: I agree with you 100%. I think they give they give more more strength, more adhesive to the whole canon by by allowing Moriarty to creep in and out of the storylines because in yes. truth in truth he like, for for such, a, for such a central character, he exists only in three stories. This one, The Adventure of the Empty House, which marks the return of Sherlock Holmes, and The Valley of Fear. Those are the only stories that Moriarty is going to show up in. And much like the Baker Street Irregulars, who are only in a couple of different things, too, it kind of makes me wonder, like, why the hell should the average reader care about Moriarty?
1: I agree with you. Like, why should they care about his character? Because you ask anyone who is the arch nemesis of sherlock holmes and they say professor moriarty and back then if you ask someone that question they'd be like arch nemesis What?" Yeah. he
0: had he had a number of people that he fought against or he was trying to bring down right Ro- is it roy lot is it joseph <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: harrison <laughs> yeah, exactly right yeah irene yeah. adler is probably more more known in the mythos like oh did irene adler come back or something or you know like it's just back anyway. then i mean not well, now, of course
0: you know we're going to have to we're going to have to suspend i'm going to have to suspend my criticism a little bit until i read the return of sherlock holmes until i read uh, the casebook of sherlock mm-hmm. holmes because maybe in those stories we learn that although he's not involved in them we learn that moriarty was a figurehead in some of these previous stories and if if i get that retrospective acknowledgement, then I'll be a little bit more satisfied because right now I'm reacting as a contemporary and thinking this guy can't be that important to me. Don't make me feel like I have to care about him.
1: Yeah, exactly. It just comes out of nowhere.
0: Yeah. You know, so I, I, I'm not, I'm not totally banging Doyle yet because I realize that I'm coming at this Retrospectively, and I'm not coming at it as a contemporary reader. So, if he's going to tell me more about Moriarity later that he was important for different reasons, then I'll uh, then I'll accept them then when I get them. But right now, I'm pissed off.
1: Yeah, no, I, I agree with you, and uh, I will wait till the, to, to, you know for this three parter to conclude. I, I guess well, it's a two parter. I guess wouldn't it? Uh, you have the empty house coming up uh, in the return of Sherlock Holmes, and then you have this story, which is the kind of the season finale. I yeah, guess we, yeah. you, you could say this is Molder in the boxcar, and they're and they're lighting it on fire.
0: Uh-huh. yeah, you're
1: right. <laughs> yeah, this is yeah, that's right. <laughs> X-Files reference for those back at home. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, so we'll go into. I think Moriarty is uh, is a branching point here, where I think we'll go, we'll light our pipes and move forward. Okay, pipes are lit. I've done them. Okay, I'll take a nice drag here and go. So, in terms of the principles, my overall mark was a four okay and i'll go into this uh i found holmes's zeal to bring down moriarty was very inspiring in in this story his fear for his friends and for his own life gave him some three-dimensionality it provides faucets of his character that has yet to come to the surface so far in these adventures now these 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 emotions these feelings come up all of a sudden out of nowhere just like moriarty does and i think that's fitting in that way um he gave his own life to end the career of his ultimate nemesis again ultimate nemesis that yeah we're just meeting we're just meeting he establishes himself as the passionate champion of justice that watson always crows about him to be so his desperation and fear is noted you know when he's taken brief shelter from assassination at watson's house um he has that automaton focus which tends to humanize him and make him appear callous and he's aware of this but you see in that final letter to watson And I give credit for Moriarty for letting him stand there and write that letter, um, which was cool of Moriarty in a kind of a respectful villain kind of way. Yeah. And it's interesting that I mentioned earlier, you know, that probably Watson's life is in danger as well and Holmes. But really, Watson wasn't really important to this whole storyline. He's more there as a witness to what happens. And it didn't seem that Moriarty was interested in bringing Watson into the equation at all um it was just between it was mono and mono more you know and then then the two versus them and he in fact arranges a whole plan to get Watson to come down to Moringan.
0: I know that was uh, that and- was very weird like do you think that Holmes well this is this is part of the thing I'm going to talk about in a few minutes the, the, the whole theory is like do you think Holmes knew that this was this was totally him going to his death like a final showdown like and if so if he did know that like why the hell did he bring Watson along and also like why did Moriarty let him live? Like, why did he not just kill Watson? Like, it didn't make sense to me. I guess that way the story wouldn't be told, right? If Watson was dead. Yeah, that's definitely true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um.
1: So yeah, final letter. Even though it's thinly veiled, it's great. It's kind of a great to know you. Thanks for putting up with me. Kind of feel to it. He even sends Mary his regards, assuring that Watson will maintain his happiness even after he's gone. Um, which I think lends a lot of fanfic ideas about Watson and Holmes being unrequited love. It's kind of romantic in that way. Um, in this story, Watson is a bystander, caught up in big events. He is in service to the plot, conveniently brought along so that Watson can witness the moments leading up to Holmes' death. The fact that he abandons his friends due to the urging of his own countrywoman rings false and upsets the emotional ground of this denouement in Holmes' career because I feel that Watson would not have abandoned Holmes at that moment. And the two of them could have took on Moriarty easily. You know what I mean? And Watson probably had like his yeah. gun or something. And I don't know. It just seemed like uh, that was... Uh, manufactured uh, it, 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 it rung false as i said um so when the steps on watson's behalf and some rushed but well-written passages confirming holmes's resolve and making him into a hero that manages not to be cheesy in that fashion uh, i give it a final score of four the principles they were probably probably the
0: strongest part of the story for me actually okay my mark was also a four for the principles um, excellent I don't, I don't actually think i have oh, i don't think i have anything to add really to what you said uh, Holmes is enjoyable. I like the fact that he's on the back foot for a change, but he also then goes to the front foot and then the back foot again. And I like Watson. I like I like the little you know mountain bromance. I think that's interesting. But uh, again, I'm going to say more about that when I get to the investigation. I agree with what you're saying. The principles work well here, but they've been more outstanding than this as a partnership. And but a four is a very good respectable mark. So yeah, four for me. Yeah.
1: Yeah, some clumsy writing, I think, made Watson go down back to the town. And I just don't think that worked out. And I think it kind of hurt the uh, – giving give me a, like a much higher score than I wanted to. So
0: Well, then this is it, right? This is why I feel as though Holmes was kind of moving, knowing exactly what was going on. Because he was there when he received the letter. And it's not like he's just going to let Holmes be alone. Holmes, if, if he suspected, as he should have, that that letter was false – you know, why Why did he just let Watson go? Like, why, why didn't he say to him, you know, like, no, Watson, stay with me, this nonsense? Like, this is obviously a ploy. Mm-hmm. Maybe Maybe Holmes had the letter sent. I don't know. It's possible. Well, there's some theories I'll talk about uh, when, when we get to the end of our investigation. As for me, in investigation, I, f- I felt like this was a really nicely written story. It was taught in places, but. Again, it was more of a follow and respond story. Like there there was no single crime to deduce, so it's very no, difficult, it, it difficult it to score. Mi-
1: it wasn't a mystery story. Like it no. wasn't Mulder and Scully solving an no. X-file case. This was them on the run with the alien bounty hunters coming after them, you know what That's I mean?
0: That's right. Yeah, this was as you said, a season finale or a series finale. And for that reason, I couldn't score it in terms of like, you know, the way deduction was worked and all that. There was only a little bit of that, a little touch of that here and there. So Uh, although it's difficult to score it's more of a film episode Um, I I decided to look at it stylistically and did I like the writing did I like the way Mm. that I was led as a story to be engaged and the answer to that was yes I did and so I, Mm. I, I, I tabled or I shelved the fact that I wasn't able to score it as a true investigation that we have been doing and instead I looked at it more stylistically I didn't score it down in other words because it didn't have certain stuff i looked for merit where i could find it and i found a lot of nice writing in here i particularly like the the kind of pace that we got picked up on and although i'm disappointed that this character of moriarity was introduced just sort of dropped right in um once i got over that and i suppose once holmes got over the back fence uh the story started to Impress upon me a little bit more, and I was more caught up with it. And for that reason, you know, I, I thought it's, a, it's it's a good read, and it's one that I would recommend. I don't think it's a gr- I don't think it's a great Sherlock Holmes investigation in the true sense of our pipe no. scoring, but I think it's good enough to warrant a three point five for me. So I feel like there are elements here that definitely deserve more of the like the description of the mountains and sort of the falls themselves, but there's still clumsiness here. You said it, clumsiness here and that clumsiness the clumsiness uh, the convenience and the sort of I, I, I'm just at the end of my race I just want to spit this story out uh, let's, let's let him go down in a fall and let's see what happens I, I feel like Conan Doyle's tired he just wants to wrap it up so I went 3-5 yeah I went 3-5 as well oh did you the story okay.
1: has yeah, I did. I found the story had strong foundations. Uh, RACD intended this to be Holmes's swan song, and the entire adventure is crafted to that purpose. You know, you get that great opening teaser with Holmes on the run from Moriarty, who, who we were given a quick info dump that makes his menace ephemeral, but unlike the high stakes of the Naval Treaty, this urgency to me is very forced. Now, you see, the high stakes of the Naval Treaty kind of interested me, and we were the opposite on that. And you seeing that you really caught up into the suspense and the urgency of this situation, whereas in this story, I, I found that the urgency was forced here. Uh, on the basis that uh, we don't know who Moriarty is, why are they on the run? It's just kind of confusing from a reader's perspective in that way. And I couldn't quite get, I guess, the, the threat that Moriarty was was, was presenting, right? Um, I just found that like the stakes needed to be, if there's stakes in this whole endeavor, then those stakes need to be shown earlier on. And I think that really hurts it stylistically as well. Um, The passages are taught and well written, but the momentum barrels out of control and it's just on this like this rickety train Because it's just like going towards its final destination But even though it's a rickety train the tracks are built so clearly and The the tracks are changed over so easily by the plot that the characters are just kind of going along with it You know, and it it just it just felt that like it just wasn't as clever as some other stories Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about the mystery part of it, I'm just talking about how they're they're written and uh, um, that was a bit of a fallback for me. Um, As I said strong foundation, shoddy brickwork that threatens to tumble like Holmes and Moriarty on the falls of Reichenbach Mm. Um, Final summation on that, a great tease and forced emotional climax that ends anticlimactic The agenda of this story is just too apparent and despite some suspenseful packaging and great character moments for Holmes,
0: 3.5 yeah, you're right. It's like it's like a poorly written episode of a TV show that we really love. It's like a bad end, a bad ending to a season that you know or a series potentially that yeah. uh, that we we expected more from.
1: It's, yeah, yeah. Like it just seems like really that's it, and yeah. and the fact that like there there's a lot of plot holes, I guess you could call it in, in the common term now. That that just shows how engineered the meeting of Holmes and, and Moriarty on the Falls of Reichenbach was, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, should I uh, say a few words now about these these theories that uh, the um, Sherlockians yeah, uh, have gone on and, and espoused from this story? Please espouse. And, uh, you know, I, f- I feel like <clears throat> in doing this and talking about this, um, I'm, I'm stepping into territory that I am not myself terribly comfortable in because I'm not, and nor what I nor what I claim to be, um, one of these Sherlockians, one of these guys who um, you know cares what color bow tie the cabbie had when he took Holmes up to blah blah blah. Right? Like I don't give a shit about any of that stuff, and yeah. I don't care. I, I don't need to know that the redheaded league happened three months in the life of Sherlock Holmes before um, a, you know a different story. Like that th- stuff don't matter to me, and so. And I think that's good because that's the amateur touch of our show, right? We can be critical in a way that these guys can't be. Yeah, you can't
1: you can't be a tricky about it. No. We, you know, we can't have like Arthur Conan Doyle or I don't know Benedict Cumberbatch or someone saying, that "You guys need a life or something like that," right?
0: Yeah, that's right. So anyway, uh, I'm going to read I'm going to read some of these theories to you. I've got a couple to offer you, okay? These theories that um, sort of come out of this and become central to the lore of Sherlock Holmes higher criticism and I'm going to ask you to pick I've got uh, I've got a few uh, let's go through Moriarity is imaginary Moriarity is innocent Moriarity lives I also have to offer you Holmes is guilty Holmes killed the wrong man <laughs> or Faith of the Fundamentalists
1: okay I'm curious to see about um Mori- so what was the first one, Moriarty? Moriarty
0: is imaginary. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see how that goes along. All right. First, there is the Moriarty is imaginary school. Benjamin Clark in The Final Problem, an essay, proposes that Holmes stage the entire affair to obtain a three-year rest cure for his drug addiction. Irving L. Jaffe's essay, The Final Problem, in his book Elementary, My Dear Watson, argues that Holmes imagined Moriarty and traveled to the falls bent on suicide. A.G. Macdonald in Mr. Moriarty concludes that Moriarty was invented by Holmes to explain his lack of success in an increasing number of cases. Holmes' ego would not allow him to admit that ordinary criminals had outsmarted him, so he invented a master criminal. T.S. Blackney refutes at some length the hypothesis hmm. advanced by a distinguished writer, whose name may not be divulged, that Holmes and Moriarty were actually the same person. Bruce, you gotta, Bruce. You, sorry, go you ahead. Gotta, I was
1: going to say, you got to appreciate now, in, in retrospect, after hearing that, um, at least the first uh, two series of the BBC Sherlock, because they did play with those ideas a lot. They did, yeah. James Moriarty. Yeah. So I, I give them props for that. And there's a lot of Easter eggs, too, beyond that. But, uh, yeah, interesting. Cool. Continue.
0: Jerry Williamson concludes that Professor James Moriarty was, in fact, Professor James Holmes, an older brother of Sherlock's, a younger brother of Mycroft's. There was something very strange. The flight from England must have been made to give James a chance to escape with his life. Acting as a decoy, Sherlock Holmes fled, vanished, and lived on the funds of his honest brother, Mycroft, until the gang was gone, and James, a free but broken man. Just as he found compassion for James Ryder, the detective found compassion for his criminal brother. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, crackpot, but interesting. Oh yeah, very crackpot. Um, shall we try a different one, then? A different theory. How about Moriarty is Innocent? Moriarty's innocent, okay. The innocent school is perhaps akin to the Moriarty's imaginary view. Daniel Moriarty suggests in The Peculiar Persecution of Professor Moriarty that uh, Moriarty was persecuted by Holmes as revenge for Holmes' being forbidden to woo Moriarty's daughter. Now, like, this is where the shit goes off the rails for me, right? Like, I'm reading all of these these indexes and these appendices and people just create shit. They just create it. Like it's like
1: yeah. Wikipedia. It's like your friend wrote a Wikipedia article about himself.
0: Yeah. Anyway, uh, get this Mary Jaffe in yes. Dear little Medea. There wasn't at uh, there was, and is a professor Mariarity. That's the title of a, an essay contends that Moriarity was wholly innocent, a bystander killed by Holmes at Reichenbach while Holmes was coked to the gills and that Moriarty and his reputation were smeared to preserve Holmes. Maybe this needs the Benny Hill music. But- yeah, maybe. Listen, listen. I got to share this one with you, man. I've been, I've, been okay. waiting. I've been waiting on this for a while, okay? This yeah. is the faith of the fundamentalists, okay? Okay. Here we go. Finally, there is the fundamentalist school which accepts that Holmes indeed died at the Falls. Anthony <laughs> Boucher... You you remember that name?
1: Anthony Boucher, the uh, disgruntled, uh, jealous critic of uh, Ian
0: Fleming. (laughs) That's right. In his essay, Was the Later Holmes an Imposter?" Suggests that after Holmes' death, Mycroft replaced him with his cousin, Sharonford. What do you think of that? (sighs)
1: Uh, uh, That's
0: that's Interesting. <laughs> well, that, that's all that voucher writes on it.
1: <laughs> I, I, I really don't take any more stock into what voucher has to say. That's for sure.
0: <laughs> well, continuing with that, um, Monsignor Ronald Knox, in his seminal studies in the literature of Sherlock Holmes, contends that the entire Post Reichenbach Canon was made up by Watson to su- supplement his income.
1: <laughs> interesting. So that Holmes has been dead all along, and the, that's and right. Just that, uh, and Ah, uh, interesting. Okay. And now we've now, got. A question. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was gonna say, did you finish the uh, complete Sherlock series yet? The uh, BBC. Yes, we did. Yeah. So sharonford was the name of the institution where Euros Holmes, the sister that they created for, were they reading fan theories? I don't know. For for uh, Mycroft and and and, and Sh- Sherlock. So.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, that was terrible. That was a terrible yeah. end to that series. That series was shit towards the end. But anyway, that's a different yeah. story. Yeah. Uh, Holmes is guilty. Here's the last one I'll read, okay? Another theory coming out of this. Holmes is guilty. There's widespread school of Holmes planned at all. The idea is first suggested by Walter Armstrong Jr. in The Truth About Sherlock Holmes, who proposes that neither Holmes nor Watson was fooled by Moriarty's note and that Holmes had anticipated a confrontation and took comfort in his knowledge of Baritsu. A similar view is expressed by W.S. Bristow in The Truth About Moriarty and by Gordon Speck in Holmes, Heroics, and Hiatus, A Man to Match Swiss Mountains. Albert and Myrna Silverstein in Concerning the Extraordinary Events at the Reichenbach Falls expresses the darker view that principally because Holmes could not obtain sufficient evidence to convict Moriarty, he enticed him to follow him to the falls for the express purpose of killing him. And in The Supreme <laughs> Struggle, Nicholas Uteken writes... Quote, the 56-years-old professor, army coach, and ruined arch-criminal probably never even saw his assailant, Sherlock Holmes, before he was sent spinning to an instant death in the gorge below.
1: Uh, some of these are good, and some of these are just like, I guess you could see it that way, but why?
0: It's, well, it's- yeah, that's that's how I feel too, Josh. Like I kind of think that this is, it's beyond a hobby for some of these critics and writers who are just kind of like let's let's make up something to justify my own article you know my own scholarship and i kind of feel like these creation conspiracy theories and different views of things and alternate histories like they go beyond a reader and they even go beyond a scholar and they just they're just like people who are creating things to better understand or interpret you know their own projections onto it i I, I don't know
1: it does, it does. But I guess, you know, people are into their fandoms as they are into religions are. these days. So, And it's who, just, am, that's
0: who, am I, who am I to shoot them down? Yes. Um, I mean, do you want to say anything about that? Because, you know, the variety and the, uh, the intensity of this Holmesian scholarship, it just it continues to amaze me. And, you know, legions of critics... Uh, enthusiasts, you know, like they they argue and they they debate and they converse about all these little fine points and they de- they de- they they declare over the minutiae of the canon and um like I I just don't uh, the academic disagreement and like kind of the, the cultural uh, disagreement over over the stories and what's real now and what was real there like it doesn't do much for me really and maybe that's because I'm not that thrown into it.
1: I, I think it's because Holmes is, I Sherlock Holmes, I think, was the first kind of character to almost like a proto comic book hero um, that stimulated this kind of conversation and discourse. But because he's been around for so long, people take it academic, ta- people take Conan Doyle's work as academic more so than just as simple as like pulp cultural serial, you know what I mean? Yeah. And and not to put down Arthur Conan Doyle's work or anything like that, but Sherlock Holmes. I mean, it's not Tolstoy, it's not Dostoevsky, it's not Jane Austen. You know what I mean? Like, I it's, do.
0: Yeah, I understand that. Like, there's a more populist bent to it.
1: But because it's been around for so long, it's it's in the literary canon. And that's why there's still a lot of theories and academics writing about it because it's taken pl- it was written at a time a society that's no longer here anymore. And people are academics are studying it, but it also gives excuse for the, for the fandom to continue and grow over time and time as well with so many adaptations and all this sort of thing. So mm. I'm not surprised that there, these theories do come up here because these people who are literary theorists who come up with Sherlock Holmes, they've got to come up with something. If the text has already been poured out for every bit of...
0: Yeah, I guess you're right. I mean, we're we're not exactly we're not exactly pulling new things out of these stories, are we? I mean, we're we're bringing our slant to it, but we're not we're we're, we're not excavating anything new.
1: All I'm saying is is that the um, these theories exist because people need to come up with reasons to support the academic study of of this literary character Sherlock Holmes.
0: Yeah, and it's uh, but you know the
1: but the well is run dry and that's why they're coming up with these um, different interpretations.
0: But I'm getting the feel like that there's this, this, this real fierce desire to link Holmes to the real world, like, for, for him to be a real person and, like, you know, they, yeah. so, so much so much of the entitlement in some of these theories and these, these beliefs uh, and the passion is, like, no, no, like, you don't understand. Like, this is Sherlock Holmes. This is the way it is. Like, he is a real person. Like, there's this whole Pinocchio thing going on. Like, I want to make him a real boy, you know?
1: Yeah, it's true. They, they, it's almost like they want to make him, like, as if he was a real person and, and, and stuff.
0: Although it could also be, you know... I'll put my hand up here. It could also be my first introduction to, like, real obsessive criticism. Like, it could actually be that. Like, maybe I've never encountered a character until I started this journey with you that is so, um, as you were saying, so canonical, so important in the literary world that there are international people bringing so much energy and passion to the subject that maybe this is the first time, like...
1: The idea that like this is a this could possibly be a real person and yeah and all of the yeah these theories yeah it's definitely to me what it is is it's almost like because of the hundred years of time that's passed since those novels came out over hundred years I should say um, it really feels that um, it's like a comic book character of the present day or the past twenty thirty years being brought to that level of adoration and obsession
0: yeah yeah. Well, anyway, okay, let, let's move on. That, that was a nice little uh, divergent for us.
1: Yeah, it definitely was. Um,
0: so a, our perpetrator, well, <laughs> Moriari. Oh, oh! before you go away, before you go away with that, that's the other thing I wanted to say. I'm sorry. I was blathering on so much. There, I, <laughs> I came across one thing that was really interesting, though, um, about tuberculosis, because you know that the letter that you gestured at, uh, and of course is in the story, that that basically lures Watson away, about this yes. woman who's contracted... Tuberculosis, the Englishwoman. Right? Yeah. That's right, the Englishwoman. Let me read this to you because I thought this was like highly interesting, uh, and I don't know if this was, if if this is a product of good writing or lazy writing on the part of um, Doyle. I, I would like to think good because if you ever have an experience that allows you to do something like this, and I think a writer should do it anyway. Let me read it to you. Uh, here we go. Until the early 1900s, the white plague was the leading cause of death in the Western world, and it remains epidemic in many developing countries today. Highly contagious consumption or tuberculosis of the lungs had devastating consequences in the crowded urban neighborhoods of Edwardian and Victorian society, where the substandard hygiene and sanitation created by rampant poverty left people particularly susceptible to infection. Okay, so what does that tell us? It tells us that Doyle has selected a believable ruse, okay? Yes. For the the time, for the time. Symptoms included fever, loss of energy, weight, persistent, often bloody cough. If untreated, TB could ravage the body, eating away at the lungs and other organs. A test for the disease was developed after identification uh, of the tubercle bacillus bacterium in 1882 by German physician Robert Koch, who won the 1905 Nobel Prize in medicine for his work and also isolated the microorganisms causing anthrax, conjunctivitis, and cholera. Hmm. Anyway, that's interesting. But, right, tellingly... Conan Doyle records in his own Memories and Adventures that his Wife Louise was diagnosed with Tuberculosis during a visit to the Reichenbach Falls in 1892
1: Oh yes I recall that yes 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 yes. That's right she had uh, consumption I know what the Reichenbach Falls though
0: it's interesting isn't it And so here we've got a story where an English lady Gets uh, said to suffer from Consumption I just think that's That's pretty cool you know
1: uh, there's a note here, too, that in 1893, Conan Doyle and his wife toured Switzerland and discovered the village of Moringen in the Bernese Alps. And so she must have had consumption when she was there. Pretty cool. Interesting. Uh, and yeah. By the way, he was already uh, cheating on her at that point.
0: Yeah, I know. It's not, not a nice story, but uh, it is what it is. It is what it is. Right. So you were saying uh, perpetrators. Yeah, Moriarty.
1: Moriarty. So Moriarty to me, um, because of his quick introduction and quick exit in the state in the tale equals Blofeld. And I'm talking yeah. about the Fleming Blofeld. Uh, actually Blofeld probably had more prisons. <laughs> The idea of his character as an evil doppelganger to Holmes would be far better executed if there was some suggestion to his existence in previous stories. Uh, That's, you know, what we've been talking about. It's a better better staging, really, of his villainies would have led to a more impactful encounter. He's half-baked to conception, and his malevolence and role in the narrative is superficial. There's potential, and I've said this so many times, but the potential that adaptations mine with wonderful results in the present day. So I give him a three for his legacy alone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like just that whole passage of his encounter with Holmes, I think is worth diving into because it's such a great moment. I'm just going to go to it right now. My nerves are fairly proof, Watson, but I must confess to start when I saw the very man who had been so much in my thoughts standing there on my threshold. His appearance was quite familiar to me. He's extremely tall and thin, His forehead domes out in a white curve, and his two eyes are deeply sunken in his head. He is clean-shaven, pale, and ascetic-looking, retaining something of the professor in his features. His shoulders are rounded from much study, and his face protrudes forward and and is forever slowly oscillating from side to side in a curiously reptilian fashion. He peered at me with great curiosity in his puckered eyes. You have less frontal development than I should have expected said he at last is a dangerous habit to finger loaded firearms in the pocket of one's dressing gown the fact that it is upon his entrance I had instantly recognized the extreme personal danger in which I lay the only conceivable escape for him lay in silencing my tongue an instant I had slipped the revolver from the drawer into my pocket and was covering him through the cloth at his remark I drew the weapon out and laid it cocked upon the table he still smiled and blinked but there was something about his eyes which made me feel very glad that I had it there you evidently don't know me said he "'On the contrary,' I answered, "'I think it is fairly evident that I do. "'Pray take a chair. "'I can spare you five minutes "'if you have anything to say.' "'All that I have to say "'has already crossed your mind,' said he. "'Then possibly my answer has crossed yours,' I replied. "'You stand fast?' "'Absolutely.' "'He clapped his hand into his pocket, "'and I raised the pistol from the table, "'but he merely drew out of a memorandum book "'in which he had scribbled some dates.' You crossed my path on the fourth of January," said he. On the twenty-third, you, you incommoded me. By the middle of February, I was seriously inconvenienced by you. At the end of March, I was absolutely hampered in my plans. And now, at the close of April, I find myself placed in such a position through your continual persecution that I am in a positive danger of losing my liberty. The situation is probably becoming an impossible one. The writing of that passage between the, the kind of the head-to-head meeting of Holmes and Watson. Wild- Watson here for the first and last time well no not last but the first conversation we see between the two of them uh, it's a really well staged moment and it would be so much better if it had a history behind the two characters like if there was always in the ba- was always in the background or something and there was hints of his name or something going on and, and Holmes knew about his existence way before but didn't tell Watson about it and until now until he could prove that he existed and now they finally they finally meet or something I think that would have this whole sequence would have been absolutely incredible per, prior if there had been prior setup for it. And yeah. that again is my final 3 for legacy alone. Right okay. And, I, I, I- and the potential
0: I also gave a three for Moriarty. My reasons were similar. Uh, He's intriguing. I do like that scene you read out, but there's no real explanation given to us as readers. We're not afforded any information that, you know, and I think that's rather upsetting, like about how long he's been in the picture and why he's important. Like, even if this is the swan song, then, you know, give us a little bit more, right? Uh, he just pops up, and after so many standalones, like here's a big mythology episode that we've got to care about, and Holmes dies, and what the hell? Like, try to think about it at the time. It's it's really quite a shock, and so I, I don't think it's um, uh, yeah perpetrator. He's obviously interesting, but he comes so quickly and so sort of sketchily that, that we never have a chance to really understand it, and it makes me wonder, and it might make you wonder the same, if Holmes, in the words of Green Day actually knows his enemy <laughs> okay that's enough of that but um, it made me think of that song so it's a,
1: it's a, it's a good choice it's a good choice uh, if it's the sl- and then sl- yeah if it's the, uh, the context
0: well listen um, um, we, we, we're running low on time I don't know if you want to uh, just rush through our scores or finish this off with a bit more of an aplomb
1: uh, well, I mean, the environs and the supporting cast are kind of nil in this story anyways. If you get a cross-country chase, it goes by so fast and you, you, go, you don't get an impression beyond the chug-chug-chug of plot plot plot, you know, throughout that whole sequence. Um, I do mean, appreciate the backdrop that that, um, uh, Conan Doyle has given Holmes for his final battle. So I think that really drove the narrative in the end for me in terms of the environs was the, uh, the fall of the Reichenbach. So I give it 3.5 for that alone.
0: Yeah. Well. Um, okay. Anything you I, want to say
1: about the environs?
0: Yeah, I went. I went for a four on the environs just because it was nice to be somewhere else, and I did think that it was fun for Doyle to be writing Holmes and Watson in a different place, and I I liked kind of the tranquility how it juxtaposed with the you know the 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 the, the air the fresh air and the mountains and the the, the valleys and the nice friendly uh, Austrian and, S- and Swiss people that are met along the way, and of course the the hotel and, and all that. I, I thought there was a real nice um, feeling to that juxtaposed with the evil that was obviously looming in the environment so I did like the environs and I, you know I went for a four just because I like stuff that has to do with the Alps and I thought it was cool that's a nice place for it to happen it couldn't have happened in London Holmes knows London too well to ever be caught out there and so I think it fits that it happens abroad that all makes sense to me and the way the environment was kind of manipulated by Moriarty I thought that was cool but I didn't go much higher than you just a half point I'll finish with the, um, the su- su- supporting players rather um, the most interesting thing about the secondary players here is the fact that Mycroft gets to be a cabbie. I thought that was pretty cool. But no, there's there's nothing really in here. Like, you know, he's... Herr, Str- Herr Stryler and the yeah. royalties Swiss page boy. That's about it, really. Although I do think it's interesting. I raised the point when I read the Greek interpreter that Mycroft, you know, led Holmes to... Or sort of delayed holmes's investigation by not telling him about this and kind of led to the death inadvertently of the client or of um, the the man who the greek guy and the um the almost death of melas the interpreter and here (laughs) in this story he's also if you think about it he's positioned to be an informant for moriarty because yes you know he's just he's just there right and he certainly could be um involved Disguised as a coachman, so I, I think that there's something potentially interesting there, but certainly not enough, like you're saying, in any of the others to go more than a three. So I just went for a three.
1: To be honest, I went for a two when it came to supporting players. Oh, wow. I just found okay. them very basic. Very basic, and that the Mycroft appearance was kind of like I don't know. I think there could have been something more with Mycroft. Right. Um,
0: all right, so that's you at a 16 for the final problem, and that's me at a 17.5. That's quite a low score for you. I've got to count that up again. 4, 3 is 7, 2 is 9, 9 and 7 is 16. Yeah, you're at 16. I'm at 17.5, so I like that one a little bit more than you, but I think it's fair to say that neither one of these stories were terribly impressive for us. Um, the Naval Treaty, a little more impressive for you. You like the intrigue, the international elements a no. bit more. So the memoirs really ends with a bit of a, bit of a whimper. Dip in quality. Mm-hmm. Dip in quality at the end of this uh, this this volume of short stories, much like the dip in quality in our uh, technical production here today. This has not been an easy episode to record.
1: It's funny. It's our shortest episode because we only have two. And it's probably our longest episode.
0: Yeah, it's our shortest episode to record. Uh, when by the time this is all spliced together, but I'm looking at no less than eleven separate files, and I'm going to have to cut and edit to make this thing possible. Maybe just throw yourself off the falls and come back, man. <laughs> That's a long way to go. It is a long way to go. Hey, well, uh, we're, we're, we're back in a month's time, uh, by which time your internet will be sorted, and we're going to be talking about um, a really great story I'm excited to read um, eight or nine years ahead of, of this. So Doyle has enjoyed some time away from Holmes before he brings him back.
1: Yeah, he does, and, I, and, uh, and instead of going.
0: Uh, you're disappearing again, man. This is uh, definitely the way the episode was destined to end. I love the cast. We'll make up for the lack of, uh, like, there's all kinds of notes here. I'm looking through my notes. There's all kinds of stuff I wanted to talk about here with these stories and, you know, little things here, little things there. I wanted to ask more questions and have more more discussion, but it's just not the day for that, buddy. Well, what and- we can do
1: uh, when it comes to the return of Sherlock Holmes, we can kind of go over our thoughts about uh, the um, the Reichenbach fall and other, and other notes that we might have had at the time, you know, and, and we can use that as fodder before we get, get to the main show when, when we uh, deal with the resurrection.
0: That sounds like an excellent idea, and uh, our next episode will be far more polished. So we'll we'll, we'll finish off the show with that. But uh, for now, from me, buddy, it's uh, it's it's goodbye, and uh, good luck with that internet connection.
1: Yeah, thank you. I'll talk to you soon, buddy. <laughs>